I think that a really bad idea is after your company failed, going on to start another company immediately after. I think that's a really bad idea. I think it's a bad idea because when your company fails, when you're out of a job, any idea that generates revenue quickly is a good idea, right? Because you're, you know, there's an inevitable struggle of, hey, I need to put food on the table. I think that the best companies get started when you have a job, when you're doing some work, and you discover something in the market that you have a unique insight on and that you have a unique expertise to solve. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Kaya from Slidebin to tell us about his orange story. Kaya, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Happy, happy to connect again. It's been a while. Yes, it's been a while. So the first question I, I like to ask my guests is like, what problem does your product solve? So I guess that the, the problem would be navigating the, the early stages of, of starting a tech startup. You, know, you can find content all over the place about this. Um, there is some really great content out there, but I think that there are a lot of misconceptions as to like how people you know, should navigate this, how to talk to investors, what you need to send them or not send them. And I think that we've done really well at teaching or guiding people to solving this. So, you know, that, that's kind of like the all-encompassing goal of the company or vision of the company, you know, helping founders scale their businesses. But more specifically, uh, you know, we help with their pitch decks, uh, with their storytelling, with, you know, figuring out their financials uh, and a few other things. Makes sense. So, so like when they come to a product, their main job to be done is to put together the pitch deck and their financial projections. Is that something, the right thing to say? Yeah. Funny enough, like, I think that a lot of these founders that we, we get to talk to are, you know, there's something that they don't know that's wrong about their businesses, right? So they're trying to go to investors, trying to, to approach raising capital, but there's something flawed about their their businesses, whether it's their team uh, or, or you know, how they're thinking about equity or how they're thinking about revenue, or they, they have no, no sense of the scale of the business, whether it's big or small. Um, but they don't know that these, they have these problems. And it's really hard to go and sell to someone and say, like, you have your business has problems. I know the answer to those problems. Uh, it's really hard to do that. Uh, so they will come because of the pitch deck. Uh, that's like the problem that they, the pain point that they find that they'll, oh, like, how do I build a pitch deck? I have no idea. How do I solve the market slide? I have no idea. How do I solve the go to market slide? I have no clue how to answer this. And the, the reason why they have no clue is because they don't have a go to market strategy. They haven't really sat down and think about this, right? But they only find out that they don't know this when they're working on the pitch deck. So I think that kind of selling or like, you know, all, most of our conversions come because they're looking for pitch decks. But as they build it or as we try and help them build it, uh, I mean, through our software and, and sometimes our own team, uh, they discover these things that they don't know. And that's where uh, that's where we want to be so sort of the go to place or the go to company or the go to content to help them answer those questions about their businesses. That makes sense. So the biggest value that you add, it's kind of like help them figure out what's the next step. It's more than like, hey, let's build a pretty deck, but like, what's the next step? How do you know what to put in each slide? And that's kind of like the problem you're helping your customer solve. Yeah, yeah. Again, these are problems that they don't know they have. 
So it, it's we can't build a landing page to say, hey, we'll help you succeed. Or we, of course, can't build a landing page that says we'll help you raise money because that's, uh, you know, because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on, on the business and the founder whether they can raise money or not. Uh, we could go and say, like, we'll help you figure out your company's story. That's not very exciting. It's not very converting, right? We convert because of the pitch deck. Uh, and then, like, we help them realize other stuff that's not working. And sometimes we can also help solve that. That's great. So, and what were you doing before you start this company? I had another startup that failed. Uh, so that taught me a little bit of that, you know, some rough around the edges uh, sort of experience. You know, I, I was part of this accelerator. This is the first time I moved to the U.S. I'm Costa Rican, so I moved to the U.S. first with this accelerator for my previous company. This was a mobile game back in 2011. Um, but, you know, it taught me, like, it, it gave me a quick uh, opportunity to get into this market. Before that, I was just in college. I, I, I'm a digital animator by trade. Um, so I am really excited about video and storytelling and film. Nice. So you left college, you did this one startup and it fell. And like, how did you come up with the idea for the next? And how was the transition from like, okay, this didn't work. I guess now you're here in the United States. And, and how, how did that go? Like having the idea for, for Slidebin? I think that a really bad idea is after your company failed, going on to start another company immediately after. I think that's a really bad idea. I did, that's what I did, but I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a bad idea because... When your company fails, when you're out of a job, any idea that generates revenue quickly is a good idea, right? Because you're, you know, there's an inevitable struggle of, hey, I need to put food on the table. So that, I think, skews your brain to pursue ideas that may not be as exciting simply because you know, you're not doing anything. I think that the best companies get started when, you're ha when you have a job, when you're doing some work, and you discover something in the market that you have a unique insight on and that you have a unique expertise to solve. Uh, but you can do that from a position, you can question this concept, you can question this idea, whether it's a good or a bad idea, from a position of comfort, where you are comfortable and you don't have to do it. So you're willing to leave this comfort role that you have, which is a job or whatever you're doing, to pursue this very risky thing on the other, rise, on the, on the other side. So that, that, I think, is the best way to get started. Not what I did this time. <laughs> I agree. I, I think I, I see a lot of successful founders and they are like, like you say, it's the expert that they know the industry super well. They understand a problem better than anybody else. And then they also are in a good position to go and invest. And, and even I have other people that come to the show were people that did on the side or people that had a small exit. And, and if you think about like, even if you look at big founders, uh, the big, very successful companies like Elon Musk, he went to so many small exits before he got to the huge ones and he was in a better position himself, but you were not. Let's talk a, a little bit about you. Like, so tell me a little bit like where you were and, and how the process went uh, of like starting this business and you like, now you understand it wasn't the best, but it still work out. How did that go? Yeah. So this is, you know, after my first company failed, we, you know, we, we, uh, we have been operating on the assumption that we were going to raise money, a very naive thing, uh, you know, the accelerator that we were part of was sort of like a guarantee. It's like we got into this program, it's very exclusive, whatever, this is Dream Adventures. Uh, but we will raise money. There's, there's no question, right? So, like, I think we made the big mistake of c continuing to fund an operation with, say, with after savings run out with credit cards. Really bad idea. So, anyway, this is a company that we finally accepted that has failed. 
we figure that we have to stop working on it. We figure, we figure that we have to stop spending money on it. Uh, and now I need to get a job to pay my to pay this debt that I have from this previous business and just do something else. Uh, shitty position to be in. Uh, but anyway, anyway, like I think that the problem that I had discovered, like this opportunity that I had discovered through that business was that as we were part of this program, like I saw how all these founders that sat around me, a really, really unique cohort of founders, I think like all, many of them are still, I, uh, you know, many, many of them are still running their own companies. Uh, probably the biggest one on series C coming into series D funding right now. Uh, so we, you know, I was sharing an office with these wonderful, with these run of wonderful, really smart people, and I saw how they all struggled with their pitch decks. Uh, it was a hassle. Like they would have to, like these are super smart CEOs, but they need to hire designers to help them out. You know, their their pitch decks suck. You know, we go through, you know, hundred revisions with the partners at the accelerator because like their pitch decks are not telling good good stories about their businesses. Um, so that's when I figured, like, man, at, at that point I sort of channeled that to say like PowerPoint sucks. And it's not helping anybody to achieve anything, which is kind of true. I do still think that PowerPoint is not a great tool. But um, the problem there was more around the storytelling, more around the way people approach the slides, uh, the more the more around pe- the way people approach story. You kind of the struggles, again, that founders have at this early stage. So the first product or the first co- concept that we came up with was, what, what if we build a better presentation builder? Uh, and that's kind of how the company got started. I arranged, you know, I got together with two co-founders, one who's... Vinny, one of my oldest friends from, from high school, even elementary school. And then uh, with Jose, who we met uh, during this process, he was also had an entrepreneurial mind who became our CTO. Okay, so like as part of this cohort, you, you found this this pain that all the other founders had. Like, let's put a pitch deck together. And so that's the problem you set up to solve. Uh, how did you fund it, that, the build of that product? Like you, you got, found two co-founders, but how did you fund to build the first version? Yeah, so I'm broke at this point, right? I, don't, I have zero money. Uh, I have I'm minus. I think it's like fifteen thousand dollars worth of credit card debt from from the from the closing of the previous business. So bad position to be in. Um, we we managed to raise a little bit of what I can only call pre-seed funding, if it even if it even we can call it that, which was from uh, you know from a close friend slash friends and family investor uh, who had been with us through the journey of the first company with, with me through, the, through that journey, you know, understood that what I was capable of and who invested in this thing mostly as a believing in me and, and the new thing that I could build rather than um, what the, whatever the product was going to be. Right. And, and I think that's the way many pre-seed rounds happen. Uh, you know, idea. Okay. Semi-interesting, but it's more, it's mostly about the founder. So I was lucky enough to have met that, that investor through that first company, so they, so so he funded our uh, our first few dollars of of uh, operations for Slightbean, and then we 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 started doing some consulting work on the side. I think that's another way you can do it. So uh, you know we would spend probably about fifty percent of our time, uh, and then slowly started fifty percent of our time doing consulting. Yeah, uh, we had built a bit of a name for ourselves, uh, or I had built a name for what I was doing. So we did a little consulting on marketing, on on development, and so on. Uh, which paid like 50% of the bills, gave us a, a shitty salary, but at least a salary, enough to pay my minimum, make my minimum payments on the credit card because uh, nobody was going to pay for that debt, of course. And then, uh, yeah, so that, you know, we slowly scaled down on the consulting work and scaled as we started, you know, getting checks. We got a couple of grants, accelerators, and, and so on. 
Yeah, I really like the strategy like of, of doing some consulting work, but that can get super kind of like challenging because you know how it's a little bit easier to make money consulting at first, but it's not very scalable. So how was the process of scaling down consulting and like stay focused on like, I'm going to build a SaaS product. I'm not building a consulting firm. So how, how was that for you? Yeah, man, that's, that's super hard. Uh, consulting is, I don't love consulting as a business. I think that the main reason why I don't love it is because my experience with consulting has always been one in which I'm the face of the company and maybe I'm not doing the sales anymore, but I'm, you know, people buy inevitably connected to me, right? So even today we have, a, we have a consulting branch of, of Slightbean. We, we, we didn't do consulting for a long time. So we did consulting, started SaaS. We worked on the SaaS for four or five years, but now that we've established a brand, people come to us to help them with their decks. And so we started a new consulting branch. Um, so with that, kind of the, the problem is that like, People inevitably make a purchase connected to the fact that they've heard about me, they've seen one of our videos, and they know that I'm the company CEO, even though I don't run the agency branch. Uh, so whenever they get mad, something doesn't work, something, some, something breaks, some, whatever something breaks, they always like to CC me. It's like, so I think that this is a reflection of how when you do consulting, if you're the founder, you are never really disconnected from it. And that can be very distracting if what you're doing is something else. I think we've put a really big barrier between consulting and, and what I do now that we have a senior uh, employee who runs, or a director really that, that runs the agency department. So Fabi, she works as a buffer for most of these emergencies. But if you don't make a conscious effort to hire someone like that, you as a founder will continue to have to struggle with that burden. At the early stage, you know, what we simply did was, you know, we just used consulting because there was nothing else that we could do to make some extra money. Uh, yes, distracting. We try to not to, to still leave time to work on slight bean. That means probably the working, of, you know, not, this is not an eight hour shift. This is a 12 hour shift where, you know, four or five, six hours go to consulting, you know, the other six hours go to the product. Um, and then uh, we eventually consciously just either sold that part of the business, like hire somebody else to do it, or you know, cancel those contracts completely. Makes sense. How long did it take you for build the version one of your, of your SaaS product? I think uh, on this mode where we're doing some consulting on the side, I think it took probably about five months, I think. Something like four or five months from, from nothing to a product that we put out there and people could sign up to. And so how was that process? Tell me a little bit about how, how the product first, like the market and the product meet, you know, there's always like the expectations. So how did that go? I think it didn't go so bad. Like the, the original product was so simple. I, I loved it because it was so simple. Like there was, we, we came up with this concept where uh, you could only build a slide that had one piece of content, right? So like the thesis was like, let's make a simple but beautiful presentations. So if you want to do a pie chart, we would have not a pie chart element that you could bring on a slide and combine with other things on a slide. We'd have a slide that is a pie chart. That's it, right? So that slide was, man, that it was beautiful because all the inputs on the slide were the title and the values for the pie chart. That's all you needed, right? So every single pie chart and every single slide we could design, oh, and it would look stunning. Every single one of them would look stunning. Uh, the problem was, of course, that people struggled with customization, right? I want to add this. I want to add that. I need a slide. This, this doesn't really fit what I need to build. So we were limiting people. By limiting people, we guaranteed their slides look perfect, but we didn't allow them to build what they needed to build. 
Uh, so that's the that's the struggle of usability that we've always had with with our product. Uh, but yeah, it was simple, beautiful. We got a few customers. I think that people really appreciated how beautiful their slides could look. Uh, and that's where that's why some of our early adopters stuck around with us through all the iterations that we went through. And I think that's a great strategy, like to, to build something that actually solve the problems and be very opinionated. When you're building the version of your product, you can have so many, you can customize so all these features because it makes harder for your user to actually get the output of they want. It makes more expensive for you to build. So that's a great strategy to come up with a version one that is just does what's supposed to do very well. It's opinionated. It doesn't serve everybody, but the people that actually serve, it serves very well. Right. So, so I think that was a great strategy that more SaaS founders should follow. So how did you get those first few customers? Like, how did you find them? <laughs> Man, the way we got them was, is this is useless stuff today. Uh, a lot of them from, from Facebook page we started. Uh, so it was all guerrilla stuff. But at this time, you know, fa- this is 2013, man. Uh, Instagram was like, you were really cool if you, you were really cool if you were on Instagram, early adopter. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, you could still get organic exposure through Facebook fan pages, which is now shit. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's really how we got our first, our first few customers. Maybe a little bit of paid ads on Facebook. Again, also less useful today. Um, yeah, uh, we started doing a little bit of SEO. Uh, we started doing a little bit of content, you know, some articles around, you know, good design practices and so on. But um, since I had this background of, of, you know, another company before another startup that even though it had failed, you know, it had, it had seen some acceptance, you know, accelerator experience and whatnot. Uh, I just remember, like, we funded our first few money, first money for that previous company on a Kickstarter campaign. So I knew a little bit about Kickstarter. Um so Kickstarter was kind of like the other step. And uh, so I, I had a lot of content to share around the process of starting a business from scratch. I, I didn't know a lot, but I had some stuff to share. Uh, so I st- we started a little blog and that that was kind of like the very, the earliest version of what now is what we do on YouTube. I really like your customer acquisition strategy. And let's talk about how that develop and how that become what it is today and, and maybe even how big it is your customer uh, acquisition strategy today. Like if you could walk us through like the pieces that you keep adding along the years. And so you start with that blog. Where did it go from there? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that any startup, any SaaS company, especially B2B, should first focus on getting profitable unit economics via paid marketing. Uh, so how do you, so it, it's a, it's an equation of running ads, understanding how much those ads cost and understanding if the revenue that those ads generated or the conversions that those ads generated are enough to pay for the cost of doing the service or, or, or the software and the cost of, uh, of acquiring those customers, right? That's, that's just business one-on-one equation. Um, why? Because a lot of companies don't easily find these positive unit economics and, and, the fact that you can't find them usually reflects that there's something wrong about your, the way you're thinking about business. It happened to us. So when we were in 500 startups, uh, we were assuming that our growth was going to be organic, completely organic. So we would charge for slacking for the presentation product about five bucks a month. Our, our thesis here was, well, we have to compete with Prezi. We have to compete with PowerPoint, which is free or almost free. It just comes with your computer. Uh, or, or Google Slides is free. Uh, Prezi is about five bucks a month. So like we have to compete with these. So we have to be cheaper, right? 
the problem was there is just no human possible way to make money on a $5 a month subscription on a B2B. There's no way. There's no way to do that with, with positive unit economics unless you have an insane marketing engine uh, of content engine running behind you. But you just can't build that from the get-go. And you need, you know, there's, this is a milestone game, right? You need to, you know, reach milestones. So when we started doing paid advertising to try and, uh, kind of like one question that, that the 500, steam, 500 startups team gave us was, what I, we've given you $100,000. How can you spend this money to get more customers quicker? And there was no answer to this because our thesis was just solely based on organic, right? And you can't really control organic. So like when we when they forced us to start doing ads, we realized, well, we just can't charge $5 a month. It doesn't work because our, our customer acquisition is, our customer acquisition cost is 100. You know, it'll take us a year and a half at best if they don't churn to collect all this revenue back. So it doesn't make sense. So that forced us to start rethinking about pricing, to start rethinking about our conversion funnels. So that's why I think that most startups should start by solving a paid direct marketing acquisition channel because it gives you answers. It gives you customers to test with. It gives you guinea pigs. It's fast because it is a proportion of your budget. So you, you can get answers really fast and it otherwise proves the model. So our first uh, half a million dollars of ARR came exclusively from paid advertising. We solved that equation. So like uh, we talk about the $5 and now you have to do a lot of playing around with the pricing. And so like where your price end up into end up getting so you, you're able to make uh, the paid channel work for you guys. And what did you learn about the customer? Why, why do you think your customer was paying more? Because you have to make them pay more than five bucks. So like what did you learn <laughs> and where did you get with your pricing? Yeah, so uh, we shifted the pricing from $5 a month on a subscription to 159 I think, annual. Uh, no monthly option. So this is what, uh, 20, I don't know, I don't even know, more than, more than 20, uh, whatever, uh, scaling and pricing. And what we discovered is that if on the $5 a month plan, we would convert 10 users on the $160 a year plan, we would convert seven users. Uh, so the conversion was affected, but not not too much, right? So that 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 in itself was a, an insane breakthrough. And I think that this kind of relates to most SaaS companies where you need to charge as much money as your market supports, as your market accepts, right? And the ceiling of how that how much that market accepts to pay is something that you have to always push the limits. You know, at some point, this market did not accept, accept this. But at some point, we charged, we went up to charging $79 a month just for the presentation product, which is insane. But people, some people converted to it. Uh, churn was super high. NPS court went to shit. But uh, like, it, it, it kind of works. So you, you always have to push that ceiling because you, you can charge more and the market might support it. Um, uh, so that's, you know, that, that's kind of an experiment that you always have to run. Yeah, and, and I think about it like, like the pain point of I need a pitch deck and it's not, I don't know what to do. It makes sense that someone would be willing to pay like the annual plan to get their one problem solved. And it's not about like everything that the PowerPoint can do is about this one task that I have to get done that they cannot help me do. Uh, yeah. And, and again, I, I love what you, you say. You have to keep testing. You have to figure out the right pricing, but it's definitely in B2B. And if you are solving that one specific problem, you can afford to charge so many a lot more than you may think you will. Like I, I saw that in SaaS products that we build, that's like 
does the same thing that Calendly does, but for one specific market, and they get to charge six times more than Calendly because it's built for X, <laughs> you know, and it's okay. So, so let's keep going. So, so you take a half a million dollars, I won't pay per click, and, and I love like you say, start here. Like we have other people that say, hey, start with cold email, but like for your kind of product, that wouldn't work because that would be too high touch. You need something low touch, uh, and and but it's also responsible that you get the response right away. So you did that with pay-per-click. So like, wh- what happened next? Yeah, so um, I-, I guess the on the cold email space, like if you're a more enterprise or a larger company, B2B, like, yeah, I think cold email would probably be the first because that's, yeah, that's a model you can control, right? I have these many sales agents. I double the sales agents, I double the revenue. Same with marketing, right? I double the budget, I should double the revenue in theory. In theory. Um, so once you have... A, so once we had this baseline of, of money, of revenue, uh, that allowed us to raise some capital. It allowed us, you know, it gave us a little bit of runway visibility in the future. We understood that, you know, we looked at our Google ads stats and what we saw was, well, we have a, about a 5% click-through rate on this ad that we're running for, for pitch deck. Uh, what about the other 95%? Where are they going? Well, they're going to the organic results. We're like, okay, if we want to really increase our market, penetration. We need to get in on the organic results. The problem was we knew nothing about SEO. We had a little, that little blog that I had started, but that was not really SEO optimized. We, don't, we knew nothing. We're like, okay, if we want to do this, we need to pursue SEO. Everything I've read about it says that you know, it's going to take months of work. So you know, I, I convinced the team and the marketing team. Well, I was, I was kind of leaving the marketing side. I convinced the, my co-founders and, and, the, and the company in general to say like, I need you guys. We need to fund this SEO experiment. It could really pay off, but I, we won't know the answer to it for the next five, six months. So we need you need to give me money to hire writers and to hire uh, a marketing team and to promote this content to see if maybe we solve SEO. Because we will run out of ads. Like there's there's only so much revenue you can get from paid ads. And, and we're about to run out. We're getting close to the ceiling in which as we increase the budget, there's just no more clicks to get. Uh, so we did it, and that was, uh, you know, I think that one of the two most crucial business decisions that we've that we've made because SEO became our our biggest source of revenue, and it, and it still is today. So uh, I mean, our website gets somewhere like three hundred thousand hits a month, all organic. So much so that we just stopped doing paid ads. For the most part, we've stopped doing it. That's amazing. And, and when did the YouTube channel become part of the picture? Yeah, so same, you know, same concept. At some point, this was back in 18, 17, 18, we were, we were already ranking second or third for the keywords that we wanted to rank for. Uh, there was, you know, breaking that number one result barrier is really hard. It's, almost, dare I say, impossible in some keywords because, you know, the company that, that owns that keyword is really hard. You know, in our own example today, that this didn't exist back then, but pitch, pitch.com will always outrank us on the pitch tech search because they have pitch in the, in the name and it's an insane domain name, right? There's nothing we can do about that. Um, so we could, we could pour thousands of dollars into SEO that we maybe, maybe we'll beat them, but it's, it's, it's an unknown. So we're like, okay, so we, we've gotten almost as good as we can on Google. What's our next search engine? Uh, what's the next largest search engine in the world? It's not Bing, it's YouTube uh, by the number of searches that happen on YouTube. So we're like, okay, let's just, do what we've just been doing for the past three years. Let's just move that to YouTube. Uh, and that's how YouTube started, as an SEO-focused video production marketing team. That's amazing. So basically, like, hey, you max out pay 
paid ads. Let's go into organic. You're like, hey, we are kind of like doing very well on organic. What's the second search engine that we can do that? And, and that, of course, is YouTube. It's the second biggest search engine. And and how was the process of like starting the channel? Like you, of course, decide to be the face of the channel. Um, how, how did that go? And then where's the channel today? Yeah, man, that, that's honestly a bit of a, a bit of a coincidence if you think about it, because you know, so most of the team were most of the team was based in Costa Rica uh, at this point. Not everybody wants to, or you know, does well standing in front of a camera. I had, you know, I think I have some decent public speaking skills, uh, even though I speak fast and I stutter and and whatnot. Like I, acceptable social speaking skills, that's fine. I'll do it. We don't have to hire anybody. It's an experiment. It's the cheapest way we can do this experiment is if I just host the videos and we'll see what happens. Uh, we were lucky to have a couple of team members from the customer support team that we had hired who had a background in video production. They, video production is not a very good profession here in Costa Rica. You don't, you can't really make a whole lot of money from that, at least in the traditional space. Uh, so these guys you know, ended up working for our customer support team. And then they're like, oh, well, we can use these skills now. Uh, let's, let's start making videos. We just took over one of our meeting rooms in the office and, and started producing videos there. Uh, and we I think just like SEO, video is a long-term experiment because you first need to go overcome the challenge of finding a format, right? So we experimented with a bunch of different formats on YouTube, a bunch that didn't work out. And we, and we, 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 we even came up with like a sitcom sort of approach where we would make like little funny startup office situations, but that, that didn't work out. The only reason why we were able to experiment with YouTube for so long was one, because I was excited about it. I had a you know, personal passion uh, about it because my background is, again, video or filmmaking. And then because it was just so cheap to do. It would take a couple hours a week to, to, to take a video. And then for the customer support team that was doing the, the production and, and, the, and some of the editing, you know, they, they, they wouldn't mind taking a break from their customers, dealing with customer, angry customers, to edit some videos, right? So it was like a fun little experiment side project that we did. And that's why we were able to keep it for so long because uh, it was so cheap because it took us maybe about, I'd say, 12 to 16 months to finally have a breakthrough video, to finally, after a lot of trial and error, like we found a format formula where we made a video that worked and worked. This is a marketing channel. Remember, it's not about views. It's not about, it's a, it's a video that worked to convert customers. And we started to see a growing number of customers that would say that they, they converted thanks to YouTube. I think that's an amazing takeaway, you know, like to build an asset that's going to be powerful. It takes time. It took time with your SEO channel. It took time with your YouTube channel. And also you had like this, this kind of, these people inside your company that could help you. So that's pretty amazing. And, and your YouTube channel is one of my, my favorite YouTube channels to this day. Like sometimes I'm like I'm spending time, like just trying to like waste time on the internet. I'm like, okay, let me, let me go see the, the newest slide being video. And it's, they're always so entertaining and they're so good. And of course it didn't start there. Like it, it's cool to see. It took like almost two years for you to, to make the first one that, that actually break through. So, we talk a lot about customer acquisition, but there's something that you brought up that I want to kind of like dive deeper on. You say you took the company to half a million and then you raise money. So like so many times, like, and especially you being in the raise money space, people think that they can raise money with just an idea and that's not true, right? You actually need to prove your business. So like walk us through like how was that the raise process and, and yeah, so tell me a little bit more about it. I think you need some money to start, right? You need some money, even though you're, you're, you have a, you have a, full-time job uh, you're, or you have savings, like I think you need some money. In our case, that was this uh, early stage 
almost co-founding, executive co-founder investor uh, who, who funded just a little bit of money to get up. It wasn't that much money. I think it was like 50K in total. Uh, but some money just to like get off the ground. Like it's not, again, a little bit of that went to salaries, but most of that went to you know, software that we need to buy, stuff like that. Um, yeah, and this was zero traction. This was idea stage. But this is money that you raise, again, as a because it's somebody you know, it's someone who trusts you. There was no pitch deck to raise this money. This was just like, hey, you trust me to build a new exciting business? Yes. Okay, so here's some money for that. Uh, that's why it has to be friends and family, in my opinion. Um, after that, we did this mix of consulting work. Uh, we, we got some grants. So these, I mean, that sort of qualifies as phrasing. So there's a grant from Costa Rica. We did start with Chile, which is a, which is a grant-based accelerator, no equity. Uh, so we moved to Chile a little, little, little there. Uh, we did 500 Startups, which is uh, like also kind of pre-seed because it's like some capital, but you, know, you don't have the traction for it. Uh, I think 500 Startups gives you like 150K today. Uh, but this is all like very milestone-based. By the time we got into 500 Startups, we had customers. We had some revenue. Uh, we understood some of these metrics. Uh, we had like $1,000 in, in MRR, something like that. But there was something there. Like people were paying for this product. Uh, and only after this is when we actually raised our first seed rent, which was still small. Uh, I think the round, this was early 2015. We're probably doing about $20,000, maybe ten dollars to $20,000 a month in revenue. Um, again, with some credibility, thanks to being accepted into 500 startups. Uh, an extension of our friends and family, like most of these investors came introduced by Alan, who was our first investor. And yeah, and we raised 250K on this. Uh, in this day, this is 2015. In this day and age, 250K is a pre-seed round. Uh, you know, Latin America is a little different. Uh, you know, you leave less money to achieve more things. Uh, yeah. And then our first proper seed round, which was about 600K, if I recall, uh, maybe more, maybe up, to, maybe coming up to 700. Uh, this was in 2016 when we were doing something, cl- getting close to a million dollars in AR. So th- that leads to my next question. Like, I, I was like, so how long did it take you again to go to a million dollars in AR? No, oh, man, that was th- those were exciting times. Uh, from uh, from the 250k round, getting out of 500 startups. At, at that point, we were doing, say, let's say 10k in in MRI. Uh, to a million, it took us, what, 18 months, uh, 24 months. This is uh, fast growth startup speed, man. This is tw- 10, 20% monthly growth in subscriptions. It's, it was insane. It was an insane time. Uh, we now operate more like a bootstrap company, so we don't see those growth numbers anymore. But uh, that was, it was cool. It was a cool time. Okay, so it took like your 18 months to go from 10K to 80K a month in, in revenue. That's awesome. That's a lot of growth. So 500 startup. Did you have to move to the United States to do that? Yeah, yes and no. Like you should be, like you don't have to be there, but you absolutely should be in California and in, in San Francisco for the program during the duration, which is like four months. So we we moved, we moved for those four months. So you, so you were here for the four months, you were in Chile for a couple months. So you're like, you guys were very flexible yeah. going around where the money was to, to make sure that worked. Yeah. Is that yeah. correct? Very much. What's like the first oh shit moment that comes to mind from the early days of your business? Oh, shit, bad or oh, shit, good? Let's do one of each. <laughs> okay. Man, the, the, after we, would do, we had been doing the grants and the consulting and everything, our clo- the closest we were, well, I mean, this was an oh, shit time. Uh, this is October 2014. Like, I, I always kept my 
financials close and looking at spreadsheets and whatnot. And I realized that we have, we don't have the money to finish the month. Like we don't have the money to make, we, this is all just three co-founders. We, our salary was $1,000 each, nothing, right? There's no expenses, but there was no more money to get through the month. Like, uh, I would not, like we had this rule that we would pay ourselves only if we had money, but I had to come, go to my co-founders and tell them, Hey guys, we don't have enough money, money to pay ourselves this month. Luckily, we didn't have any employees that depended on us. Uh, so it was just this. But it's, but still, it's it's a re- big red flag. Uh, I realized this uh, maybe on a Friday as I was running the numbers to close the previous month or something. Slept on it through the weekend. And I'm like, well, I'm, week, let's just, I'm just going to send them a message on Slack. It's like, guys, uh, we probably need to take another consulting project. We were still open to this, right? Uh, to get to the month because, you know, we... I kind of need those thousand dollars to pay that credit card debt that I still have, um, and it's just to pay the bills. I have, I have a, I have a daughter by this point, um, and that Monday I got the acceptance email from Five Hundred Startups. Whoa! It was man, it was so close. I was so close. Yeah, it was so close. Like, I, I, and we just came, we had just come back from Chile, right? So we were we've been away from family for a while. Uh, six months. Chile was six months. Uh, we've been away from family for a while. Uh, we're like, guys, like we have two choices. If we take 500 stars, we have to go live in California for four months or we don't have money or we run out of money, like with, with the consequences that that has. Uh, so we were reluctant to take on 500 startups because it was more dilution, uh, because we didn't know if we really needed another accelerator. We did, but we didn't know. Uh, and yeah, but you know, the decision was easy because it's like, that's the only way we can get enough money to pay the bills this month. That's the shitty part about being CEO, man. Like I've, I think I've done a good job of protecting my co-founders from this sort of stress, the stress of like, we don't have money to close the month. Like I want, you know, I've always made an effort for you to, avoid, you to solve, try and solve these problems and to deal with the stress of the operations stress uh, so that that doesn't translate to the team. But yes, I, I do long as a founder for, I mean, as a, as a creative person, if you will, to have to have zero of that concern and just focus on product, 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 or 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 marketing, marketing, marketing. Uh, that's the bad shit moment. Okay, yeah, that's definitely a, a bad one. But it, it, the output was great. Uh, but I agree with you. I believe that the CEO's number one CEO's job at the beginning of the company is make sure they're not don't run out of money. You know, you have to make sure there's money in the bank. That's their only job. <laughs> you, you know, and then you were like, oh, shit, there's no money in the bank. That was my job. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, so how about the good one? Man, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll name two. So one, like I think that this early stage startup uh, growth time was really exciting now that I remembered it. Uh, man, like, yeah, when, when you're growing, when your MRR or your subscribers are growing, like, again, from 10 to 20 to 20 to 25, 25 to 35 from month to month. It's insane. Like you've like, it's so easy to raise money at this point. Investors are fighting against each other to get in on it. Cause it's, it's there's the foam. It's like this company is growing really, really fast. It's really, really exciting business. Uh, and, and it's a unique, a unique opportunity. Uh, and I think a lot of founders feel ready to raise money, but they don't. But when you see those metrics, like oh, like this is like this is that aha moment. Like this is what what uh, it was all about. This fast growth. We couldn't keep up with it for a bunch of reasons. But you know, during those eighteen months, it was a really exciting startup time. Um, so that was kind of one one of those aha moments. Um, like oh shit, we're growing so fast. What what are we going to do? Uh, the team went from zero to 
I mean, from three to 15 people in, in a matter of, of days. Um, so that, that was one. On the other side, like uh, more recently, we haven't been growing revenue so fast, but what we have been growing is, is our YouTube channel. Uh, and man, YouTube has given us some really cool aha moments. I met the CEO of ClickUp the other day because uh, ClickUp's co-founder watches our content. I'm like, why would you watch our videos, man? Like, that's it. I, I have nothing to teach to you. Why would you watch them? Uh, but yeah, it's it, like you said, a little bit of enter- entertainment, like understanding what's happening and so on. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of unicorn CEOs reach out for various different reasons. And this has all happened because they watch our content. And that's that's insane, man. I don't have anything I, I believe I can teach to them. Uh, a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, in, in, um, imposter syndrome on this. But, you know, I've learned to appreciate kind of my own or our own uh, expertise and at least being able to tell entertaining stories, whether it's about companies about, or about something else. And we operate in this, in this curious niche where it's really hard for it. It's really uncommon for the CEO of a B2B SaaS company to carve out time to tell stories to other people. In our case, it's fantastic. It's, there's great ROI. We do it and we love it, but it's not usual. And I think that that's what people have appreciated. Yeah, you, you do such a good job telling those stories, man. You shouldn't have imposter syndrome. It's like when I want to know more about a, a certain company story, I go in your channel and, and I see, I want to go and check if you made a video about like <laughs> when the whole Elizabeth Holmes thing become popular. I was like, what is this about? Let me, let me go check if there's a video about uh, on your channel, <laughs> you know, because like the way that you organize the information is it, just so so well put together and i think there's a lot of value that, that you give for for founders there you know like um you can learn a lot from other founders from their stories and, and even the videos that you you do giving like specific advice they're also great but the ones that i love i like when you're telling a story about x company uh those are my favorites much appreciated man um yeah like w- with youtube i've sort of been bit by this youtube bug right where uh we, we, when we got our plaque, man, oh, that was so. We got our hundred thousand dollars subscriber plaque, hundred thousand dollars. Sorry, when we got our first hundred thousand dollars subscribers, YouTube sends you a plaque like this YouTube silver plaque that says you you got to this many subscribers. Oh, that was an insane moment as we unboxed that. It was insane. Um, now we of course want to get to the million dollar to the million subscriber uh, plaque, which is bigger and gold. Uh, and like so, like we again. We, Myself and the rest of the media team, we've been bit by this bug where we see the value that YouTube brings to us, uh, regardless of how much sales it brings to Slime Bean. Like we are really excited about the doors that this has opened to us, and, and you know the exposure that it has given our team, our brand, our 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 our, our, our content. Like we have really exciting people who watch our videos and appreciate them. Uh, so that's that's insane. I don't want to give that away. Um, so, yeah, so we now continue to pursue YouTube, yes, because of a brand thing, yes, because of customer acquisition thing, but also perhaps because there is a path to, because we're good enough at it so that there's a path to a business there. Yeah, I, I think that's the the real, like, path to success. When you're doing something because you love, not because just because you want the customers, not just because the acquisition channel. You really care about that problem. You care about the startup founders and you want to present content for founders in a way that that's unique and that really adds value. I think that's when you're successful. Like so many times you I feel like if you're too worried about making money, 
you're not going to make money. <laughs> so like, you have to really enjoy and to have fun. It's amazing to hear you talk about like, hey, I love when I got the first plaque and the second plaque. And I think that's something that each founder should think about. Like, hey, I'm building a company and I'm having a lot of fun because if you're just, just doing just for the money, there's other ways to make money. You're probably better off getting a job in one of the big companies and just going up the, the ladder. <laughs> you know, you, you, sh- you should do this stuff because you love it. And it's, it's going to follow, right? You know, like those big founders that you met, it, it just wasn't the goal. It just follows uh, your passion because you're doing like, because you care about it. So what has been your, like, your biggest challenge to date uh, building your SaaS product? Man, I, I think it's probably been around understanding, understanding this analogy. I mean, people have probably heard this a million times. That the fact that building a company is not a sprint, but a marathon. Um, so, you know, in a sprint you run, but you're exhausted in, in five minutes. Uh, a marathon, you have to run for hours. Like, I, I think that any building any company is that. You have to uh, be prepared to run this company for years. Uh, you know, I'm I'm coming up on eight, almost nine years now as the founder of Slidebeat, which the only way you can make that work as a human being, man, the only way you can, and especially as a founder, as an, someone with an entrepreneurial mind who, who, who comes up with new ideas, comes up with new shit all the time and wants to build it. Um, and, you know, these are, <laughs> uh, dare I say, like, these are prime years of my life, right? I'm, I'm 34 now. So, like, if you, if you want to, if, to spend your best brain years working on something, uh, you need to be very passionate about it, but you need to understand. You need you need to balance your energy to make sure that you can last to the end and not burn yourself out. And I think that that's probably been the biggest challenge. In the early stages, you almost have no choice but to working long hours because you know the clock is really thick ticking. Uh, when growth is really ex- exciting, you know you have to stop yourself from working more because everything is so exciting that you know so much shit happening. And so fast that you almost want to like at least for me it's it's inevitable right it was very hard to like restrain myself from like i know if i finish this thing we'll make like ten thousand more dollars in in a, in a month um so like stopping yourself knowing when to stop yourself and last point like understanding when you when you are burnt out i think that I've, i had never been truly burnt out as like during my job as i was maybe two three months ago like I under, I've, I've found myself, and I didn't know I was. I was just keeping going. I think that uh, most of us can do that. Let's we'll keep working, solving problems. Oh, there's this new issue, fine, I'll take it. There's this new thing that I have to do, fine, I'll, I'll do it because somebody has to do it, right? But I took a, I took a, a break. I took a, like a two week vacation, and during that time, I'm like, man, fuck, I've been so, I, I've been burnt out. I've been doing shit that I don't like doing. Uh, I haven't come up with new ideas. I'm not bringing in new of true value into what we do. Uh, and I didn't know because uh, I hadn't had the time to take a, take a breath. Um, so that's probably been the hardest, the hardest part. Uh, when you have the stress or the pressure of potentially running out of money uh, or, you know, at this point, I, I hope I'm, there's, there's a very almost impossible possibility that I get fired. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a reality of, of, you know, of a team that if you, know, if you don't make certain goals, you will need to let go of some of the team. And that sucks, man. Like, it, 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 it sucks to, like, that responsibility bears on you. Uh, so that, there's inevitable stress that the company, that company will bring you at any stage. There will always be problems as a, as, a, uh, as a founder that you will need to solve. So that stress is ever-existent. And learning to deal with that in a way that you're not burnt out 
in a way that you can take a break, in a way that you can still leave your brain free to do stuff that you like doing that's not work, uh, is it's probably the hardest balance I've had to make. For sure. Uh, me too, man. Like I, at one point, I was like 50 pounds over my weight because I, I was just working so much and I couldn't like think about anything else. And like you're overworked, you're like, like you say, burnout. So like that's for sure is the challenge of finding the balance of like giving everything to the company, but also don't become a liability to your company. It, 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 is, a, it is a challenge and having to, to go through that, like I think forever we're going to have to be balancing that. So let's say you could go back in time and meet yourself from 2013. I think that's when you started the business, right? 13? Yeah. yeah. So, so like, so you're meeting yourself from 2013. You have about one hour with yourself. What are you going to tell yourself? What kind of like, what's the theme of the conversation? Man, I, I'd say that um, you, uh, a few things. <laughs> so YouTube had been a uh, sort of like a bit of a passion of mine that I didn't accept, that didn't accept until recently. Uh, funny story, like I think that the, the the straw that broke the camel's back on that was in this office, in this startup office that I was telling you about for DreamIt, where we had all these 15 wonderful founders, and the largest company that came out of that cohort was Pete, again, Series D, the, he's the CEO of Jackpocket. But another founder who was in that office was Nas from, from Nas Daily, Nosire by his actual name. So he was starting this other company, he had nothing, no YouTube videos, no one-minute videos, nothing. Uh that his company failed really quickly, but you know, one year after that, he started making these one-minute videos on on Facebook, uh, and suddenly it blew up. Uh, he he came to Costa Rica, like we actually did a deal with him, and he flew to Costa Rica. So, um, like seeing how he was succeeding at that made me, for the first time in a long time, jealous of like, man, this guy is living the dream. He's creating wonderful content. People follow him because the content he creates. Um, it's. And, and and I happen to know him, and I've sat down and have had beers with him, and can discuss where this is going. Um, like this, this was an exciting, like again, a, a really unique uh, opportunity, connection, conversation uh, that sort of pushed me to pursue that one thing. Uh, so that's one thing. Like you know, if, if, you, if you have a niche about something, do it. One, if you like, surround yourself with do your best to surround yourself with these people. Like I've always been critical of conferences, started conferences, but now I love going to these things because that's when you surround yourself with these people that sort of work as partners, examples, role models, uh, or just give you ideas to, to bounce off. And you're, and, and in my case, since I'm locked in, I was in lockdown in Costa Rica for two years. Like that, that, that is something I really appreciate. And then last point, like just again, prepare yourself for a marathon. Like if you're going to, if you're going to pursue this thing of starting a business, know that it is, you have to make it work for years. It's it's not a and, and you you can't burn yourself out too quickly. Makes sense. That, that, those are great advice for yourself, and of course they work for other founders too that listen to the show. And what book do you recommend for like every SaaS founder? Like, if there's one book you think every SaaS founder should read, what book would that be? Two books: Traction One. Uh, this is Traction by Gabriel Weinberg, who's the CEO of DuckDuckGo. Fantastic book on on growth. Fantastic book. Uh, and I guess Lean Startup, which is probably, probably people, all the people have recommended this, but I, I still think it's an essential startup book. Nice. Yeah, those are great books. I love both of those books. So so where's the company today and what's, where is going? So like you told us about the company history, how we got here. So like this is my final question. Like, so where is that going now? Um, yeah, man. So we've, we've discovered that we have this, these two branches, right? We have the agency branch, the consulting side, and we have the SaaS branch. Uh, so they're both growing. They both have both have teams that are 
really good that can that I believe can continue to operate those businesses where my help is not I don't you know I'm not getting into into coding or building or deciding on features and so on like my insight here is strategic operational etc so I, I think that the media side is one that we absolutely want to pursue uh, and, and the question that we've been towing ourselves and towing our brains with is like how much do we want to pursue this how much do we want to invest in this now uh, as, as a potential new branch of the business because I think that we've we're uniquely positioned to to become a relevant source of content uh, beyond what we've already been doing. But that requires us to refocus, to rethink, and most importantly, it requires me to carve that time out and that creative power out of running the business or strategic operational stuff to you know, to create creativity and content and and living in a world that that I don't belong where where I don't belong, which is YouTube and and, and you know I. The few uh, large YouTubers that I've met also can think because of the channel or thanks to the channel. Uh, you know, these are guys that live and breathe YouTube. Like that's what they'll do all day. They'll, they'll watch other creators' content, and there's this uh, this creative loop of 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 what what goes on. I don't have time to watch a single YouTube video a day. Like I'll maybe I'll, maybe at night I'll plug in one or two, and these are really selected videos. So like the like carving out that time, I think is is fundamental. And I'm really excited about that path for the company. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that that path will unlock growth for both of the other channels or for both of the other revenue lines as well. I think like content I was thinking about, it's kind of like the first kind of SaaS business. Like think about Disney. Like they built something that still today, it's like giving them money. Like they build it once and it's like, and keep, people keep watching, keep, people keep doing. So like, I, I love that idea and, and especially like, you can use the out together because there are companies that start with a product and go to media, start with media and go to product. And, and I like where you're you're setting yourself to be. So Kai, where can people find you? Man, I I, I have to say YouTube. Like I, I could tell people to go to slidebean.com. I could tell people to follow me on some social network, but I think that where most of the journey starts in in becoming a customer of Slidebean is on YouTube. So just check us out on YouTube slash Slidebean. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. Everybody, please go check his channel. It's amazing. Awesome, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thank you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.